BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Broadcasting around the nation, on your radio, on your TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone, and happy Monday. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter for The Guardian, filling in for Bill this morning. Stable genius. That is what the president of the United States has deemed himself amid questions and concerns over his well-being, over his fitness for office. We have that to unpack and maybe Oprah 2020. A whole lot from the Golden Globes last night. Uh, Chatter certainly about whether another celebrity billionaire, a real billionaire, might run for office uh, and maybe be the perfect foil to our resident stable genius, Donald Trump. Uh, We're going to get into that and a lot more with my friends, and that includes Peter Ogburn. Good morning, Peter. Sabrina, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you as always. I haven't seen you yet in the new year, I don't believe. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And we have Ray Rogers with us and the great Cyprian Bolding. Hi, Hi. There we go. There we go. It's Long back. time since I got my, um, you know, coming in the studio. Hi from Cyprian Bolding, who <laughs> makes us all look good on camera. Um, you know, we've got a great lineup of guests today and lots uh, to unpack, and we'll get right to it. But first, this is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Sabrina, how do you feel about Jack in the Box? Have you ever had Jack in the Box? Yeah, I used to. Freak me out a little bit. Really? I guess like just the anticipation of the the surprise. No, 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 no. Not the not the toy. Oh, not the toy. The fast food restaurant. Oh, I didn't know that's a thing. You've never had Jack <laughs> in the Box. You never heard of Jack <laughs> in the Box. Jack in the Box is a fast food restaurant, primarily <laughs> okay. on the West Coast. Oh. Well, they have teamed up with uh, rapper Snoop Dogg to introduce a new combo meal. It's called the Mary Munchie meal. Oh now, my gosh! They know who they're catering to here. Yes. Uh, because, again, they've teamed up with notorious pot smoker uh, Snoop Dogg. You can get chicken strips, two tacos, five churros, french fries, onion rings, and a small drink, all for the low, low price of $4.20. You see how yeah. they did that? I see that. Four twenty. Yeah. Huh. So how did they come up with that number? It's available <laughs> It's available in California uh, January 18th to the 25th. They're just doing a... One week run, and of course, if it works out really well, you might see more of them around the country. All right, I may I'm have pro to check this. It out. I don't usually eat fast food, but uh, Jack in the Box. If you've been you're out, 
pro Snoop Dogg partying, Jack in the Box will fill that crater. All right. Will absolutely do it. So last week I was talking about the cold weather in the south, primarily in Florida, where it's gotten so cold that iguanas are falling out of the trees. Did you I hear saw about a photo of that. Yeah. So people are freaking out. They think that they're dead, that they've frozen to death, but they're not dead. They're just fast asleep. They're just dramatic. They're just <laughs> <laughs> just very extra, these iguanas. So here's this is a story about a man who saw a bunch of these iguanas, got them, put them in his car, and he was going to cook them and eat them. You can eat iguanas. In fact, it's a delicacy oh, in some gosh. parts of the world. No, seriously. No, seriously. I've never had them, yeah. but it's a real thing. I ate gator in Florida. I've not eaten iguana. I've never had iguana, but it, it, especially in Miami, people will eat iguana. So this guy went around, he got up all these iguanas that he thought was dead from the side of the road, and he put them in his car. Oh, no. Now, the car has heat, so the heat woke the iguanas up, and the man crashed his car because he had a carload of iguanas that woke up from a deep sleep and began Running around the vehicle. That is horrifying. Is that not the most horrifying thing you've ever heard? I feel like heard? it's like out of Jurassic Park and all the little raptors like wake up or just pop yeah. out of nowhere. Like they all, they are, they're all crowding around you. They were just like waiting to over kill. your shoulder. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, they actually pointed out leave the sleeping iguanas alone because they will bite. I mean, an iguana bite isn't the worst thing in the world, but they do bite. And so this person, this guy that was driving his car, was so freaked out by the iguanas. He crashed his car. So no iguanas for him. Leave the iguanas Leave alone. alone. Yeah. You know Trump would totally like go over and like prod it. A hundred percent. He'd put them in his pockets. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Fire and Fury, the name of the book that rocked Washington and the White House last week. First, with quotes from Steve Bannon himself, uh, that neither Trump's former chief strategist in the White House nor the president have denied in which Bannon said that the infamous Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016 between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and the Russians, where they were offered incriminating information about Hillary Clinton, was treasonous, um, unpatriotic. Those are some of the choice words uh, that Steve Bannon had for Trump Jr. in particular uh, and his conduct in helping facilitate that meeting, of course, leading to a public rift that was unprecedented even by this president's standards, obviously um, using the White Office of the Presidency to say that Steve Bannon lost his mind. Um, but since then, we've moved on to more pressing matters, such as whether or not the president is mentally fit for office. Uh, Peter, this is something that isn't new by any means. No, I mean, look, I've been saying that, I mean, I'm not the only person, but I've been saying this for a long time, that the president is obviously not well. Mm. Like, there's something very wrong with him. I mean, and his erratic behavior and the tweets don't help uh, the case. Uh, if you think about just last week, while the book uh, was doing the rounds, Trump was busy tweeting that he had a bigger nuclear button 
that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, because that's what you want to do. You want to taunt North Korea by bragging about how you have a bigger nuclear button at your disposal. Look, the two times that uh, the president of the United States has bragged about his, the size of his manhood oh boy, uh, have happened under Donald Trump. It, it happened twice. Where he got in that one riff. I guess he wasn't president then. He was a candidate. But when he was talking with Marco Rubio, mm. Marco Rubio tried to work blue and and say that the president has small hands. So, you know, that must mean that you he know has what they a say small, about. Yeah. So Donald Trump took to the stage to make sure the entire world knew that there was no, no problem. problem in that department. Believe me. And then <laughs> uh, and then a knock on the uh, nuclear button, which he says is bigger than Kim Jong-un's and it works. Uh, so we live in in pretty uh, remarkable mm, times. Right. But the president uh, could have just ignored the chatter that has stemmed from Michael Wolff's rather salacious book. Um, he could have ignored uh, the renewed concerns over his stability and just not engaged. But... Who is this president, if not one, to always, <laughs> always engage and give even more fuel to fire and fury? See what I did there? Uh, so he, of course, had a series of tweets because that is his preferred medium on Saturday morning, insisting that he is, in fact, um, not just mentally fit. He is a stable genius. And then in remarks before the press, while at a retreat with Republican leaders at Camp David, he went on to say this. I went to uh, the best colleges or college. Uh, I went to a, uh, I had a situation where I was a very excellent student, came out, made billions and billions of dollars, became one of the top business people, went to television and for 10 years was a tremendous success, as you probably have heard. Uh, ran for president one time and won. And then I hear this guy that uh, does it not know me, doesn't know me at all. By the way, did not interview me for three. He said he interviewed me for three hours in the White House. It didn't exist, okay? It's in his imagination. And what I was heartened by, because I talk about fake news and the fake news media, was I really was the fact that so many of the people that I talk about in terms of fake news actually came to the defense of this great administration and even myself, because they know the author and they know he's a fraud. So, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to unpack. Um, first of all, I just think it's funny that he had to bring in this idea that the fake news media, as much as I, they're fake news, they actually defended me. So, so in this case, it's not fake news. It's the truth because people are saying are saying good things about him. Which, just a quick word of caution there. There were political reporters who cover the White House who said that people should have pause about some of the um, allegations in Michael Wolff's book because in his author's note, he points out that some of the anecdotes are effectively reenactments of what he saw. So there is not is not clear where he has actual tapes and where he is working off of notes and recollection and then where you could potentially mis uh misremember a quote um there there are certainly parts of the book that people feel uh, have been 
made more dramatic or t- but or taken out of context. Look, but look, but look, no one said right. that it's it's all false. Right. And if anything, what a lot of those reporters said is the reason it is so believable is because this is par for the course for this administration. There has been so much backbiting, attempts by aides to undermine each other, infighting, uh, and a very ruthless culture that was built up over the first year of the presidency, and that it was entirely plausible, um, the, the, the contents of the book were at least accurate in some capacity, and also that there's been so many reports about how the president is, in fact, treated like a child, that he likes a lot of pictures in his briefings, that he doesn't want many words, that the font needs to be big, and like and 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 you have outsta- out- extraordinary um, moments from the first year where Rex Tillerson, as Secretary of State, allegedly called him a moron, using more colorful language than just a moron, which I cannot repeat, um, which he didn't later even deny having no. said. No, he never denied um, it. But you know, Peter, first, I, there's also a bunch of tweets that I re- referenced um, that came before these comments, and do a little... Uh, do a little bit of a dramatic Yeah, universe. yeah. All right. So here we go to uh, Twitter where Donald Trump began tweeting. Uh, this was Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, now that Russian collusion after one year of intense study has proven to be a total hoax on the American public. Not true. The Democrats and their lapdogs, the fake news mainstream media, are taking out the old Ronald Reagan playbook and screaming mental stability and intelligence dot, 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 dot. Next tweet. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. That is a quote. <laughs> being, like, really, really smart. smart. I'm, like, really smart, you guys. <laughs> Crooked Hillary Clinton also played these cards very hard and, as everyone knows, went down in flames. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star, dot, 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 dot. To President of the United States, parentheses, on my first try. (laughs) I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius, dot, 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 and a very stable genius at that. All from Donald Trump on Saturday morning, where he compares himself to Ronald Reagan, which, well, I do see a couple of comparisons between him and Ronald Reagan. So a couple things. Um, (laughs) Where to begin? Um... Well, he, the thing about Trump is whenever he is criticized, of course, he likes to point to his tremendous success in business, in other ventures, such as his uh, unprecedented win uh, in 2016, certainly unexpected. Um, and he, he just points to his glowing record, or, or he likes to at least, uh, suggest that it is such. And it's the same, actually playbook that we see from the people who get on the wrong side of Trump when they offend him or when they feel like they um, have inadvertently walked into hot water. They they tend to deliver these very dear leader type of apologies. You actually mentioned Rex Tillerson having allegedly called Trump a moron. His response to that was to come and give a very rare public statement to the press where he extolled the president's leadership and foreign policy record. And it was really an attempt to curry favor. Even Steve Bannon, as he's been apologizing for this, these quotes uh, that from the very same book, it, you see a lot of the same playbook. It, you know, he's a very smart man. He's very intelligent. Also, intelligence 
should not be conflated with stability. Now, <laughs> the, 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 now, obviously, one could make the case that this is not the most um, informed president. Uh, does not have a great grasp of policy, if any at all. He has not shown any interest in um, improving his understanding of how the government works. He still doesn't even know how Congress really works. He still thinks for some reason that he needs to eliminate the filibuster when a lot of, when a lot of times it's been Republicans who, despite having a majority, have been unable to pass key components of his legislative agenda, like a repeal and replace of Obamacare. But I digress to simply say that, sure, he built a business empire off of a very generous loan from his father, but sure, he built a business empire. He did orchestrate this candidacy with uh, some level of uh, understanding of where the Republican base was and how to capitalize on that. So yeah, no one is saying that he's dumb as rocks. You know, like... Oh, oh, I am. I mean, you are, I sure. Am. But like, I'd like to say that. Let's just say... Well, you are. But let's just say... I'm just going with his argument, I know, right? I know. Like, it is possible to have at least some savvy in business... Or, granted, he's had many failures, too, and bankruptcies. But let's just, it's possible to have some savvy, you know, in, in the TV shows that he produ- has produced or or getting his, having a pulse on what people might want. But also possible to exhibit behavior that people find to be deeply concerning and to raise questions about your stability. Look, uh, look, the <laughs> Michael Wolf, as you talked about earlier is a known fabulist he has in the past been called out on making things up he sort of talked about even in this book they're just recreations from his memory he doesn't necessarily have tapes or direct quotes and that i think is is a is a part of the conversation we should be talking about but at the same time when you look at what the president has done over the year that he's been president. All this adds up. It all adds up. I mean, you've seen chaos in the White House. We've seen it. We've heard about it. We know that that's sort of how he operates. So, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to accept that some of the the quotes, direct quotes in the book might not be 100% on point, but like the gist of the book, right. I believe it's true. And that's because it corroborates a lot of what was already out there. Right. It's, you know, the, the whole first six months especially of the Trump White House was dominated by feuds and efforts by aides to perform for an audience of one, constantly fearful of losing uh, their standing because they Trump had soured on them because one day you're up, one day you're down, one day he's hot, one day he's cold, and constantly having to clean up after whatever it was that he tweeted that same morning at 5 a.m. because his first instinct is to wake up and just start tweeting whatever stream of consciousness, uh, you know, flows from his mind. And and this is so it's not an isolation, as you say. This is not because of the book. This is something that we've been talking about for a year, over a year since he was actually a candidate before he even assumed office. Um, So that's an important point that you make and why some lawmakers, and we'll talk to some of our great guests later about this, are actually being briefed on his fitness for office. I interviewed uh, the Yale psychiatry professor, who, Dr. Bandy Lee, who's been out there leading this campaign somewhat controversially. But 
she's part of a group of a coalition of psychiatrists who are, are mental health professionals more broadly who are speaking out and saying that you know this president should submit to a psychological exam and that there is a very real danger that could be posed especially if you look at the North Korea tweet we talked about where you know he could in a split second decide to launch a, a, an airstrike against North Korea or a missile you know to a preemptive missile strike that could result in some kind of catastrophe and he ha- and he's so impulsive and so reactive that it's not out of the realm possibility that he that he does in fact um, act uh, on in in the very same erratic way that we've seen him tweet and behave uh, in 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 much more serious with much more serious consequences. I think that this point was really driven home uh, on ABC's this week by their political director Matthew Dowd, who said fundamentally the president only made matters worse in in what he's done. All the tweets and everything have basically confirmed everything Michael Wolf said. Right. So like yeah. you can you can say Michael Wolf is. Someone who has in the past stretched the truth mm-hmm. and sensationalizes things for his own sort of benefit. But you look at what Michael Wolf says in the book and you look at how Trump is responding and you go, yeah, that, that really adds up. And, right. and part of that is like you're playing right into the characterization. Yeah. But also like the scorched earth approach that they took to Steve Bannon where they came out. Yeah. Donald Trump came out and said. He has lost his mind. Yeah. Okay. Official if, statement from the president. Right, right. <laughs> if the book is totally made up and fabricated and nothing is true, then who cares yep. what, Steve, what, like, what Steve Bannon then did you say, say? Then you say, I don't believe Steve said that because right. his book is uh, pure fiction. Right, It's exactly. complete fantasy, as Sarah Sanders said, except when it comes to Steve Bannon because it's politically advantageous in this moment for us to distance ourselves. But, um, look, at the end of the day, what Trump did was tout his uh, credentials and talk about his time in business as a real estate mogul and the many many successes he had and all the money he made. You know who else has built an empire and made a great deal of money, Um, perhaps shown herself to be more coherent more eloquent um and maybe in a in in another time it would have seemed improbable but but very well could mount her own candidacy for president who is it nikki haley Mm. (laughs) oprah (laughs) oprah her too um golden globes the Golden Globes, which are those kind of bizarre awards that are awarded by the Hollywood Foreign Press, like I don't, I don't actually like really ever understand who those people are. But anyhow, uh, Oprah was um, honored at the ceremony and gave a speech that immediately had people buzzing because it very well may have ended with, and with that. I declare my candidacy for president of the United States. Uh, we should take a listen to some of it, uh, but I highly recommend. I mean, joke, uh, political implications aside, I highly recommend it's that a great everyone great. watch this speech. Don't just listen to it, but watch it from start to finish and then go watch it again because it is extremely poignant. And here's a little bit of what she had to say. 
So I want all the girls watching here now to know that a new day is on the horizon. That's a great day. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Time's up. That was one of her other big uh, lines. The time is up. Their time is up. And she really wanted to crystallize this watershed moment um, around combating sexual assault and harassment and the systemic uh, gender inequality that manifests itself all over the world. But even here in the United States, one of the most developed countries in the world, no matter what it, the industry, and she, she hit on the fact that it, it's, it crosses generations, class, race, ethnicity, um, it's something that is just pervasive. And we've talked about that a lot here uh, on this program, especially as we've had people in politics, um, powerful men in politics be accused of misconduct. Uh, Al Franken, of course, uh, was forced to resign as, as senator from Minnesota. Um, you've had a couple of members of Congress who've said they re- they've had to retire, but, you know, it's effectively a resignation. Looking at you, John Conyers and Trent Franks, um, Republican from Arizona, um, but but more back to the Golden Globes because all the celebrities also wore black. Um, they called it the black carpet. It was it was a show of uh, support for the movement because all of this really began with revelations that Harvey Weinstein, you know, decades long uh, Hollywood mogul, uh, had been a serial predator. Um, of course, over the investigative reporting spanning, you know, a year in some cases by the New York Times and Ronan Farrow um, as well, had been accused of rape, uh, assault, harassment of all forms. And so I think that this was Hollywood's way of um, responding to the moment. And, and Oprah very much spoke to that, to the emotions that have led up to this point, and also, frankly, didn't really say much about herself at all, the entire speech. It's funny, because we were just talking about someone who who only speaks about himself, or only really <laughs> seems to care about himself. Um, and then you saw another ta- another um, tactic or, or approach manifest itself last night. You know, it, it was interesting to me, it's not lost on, on me, that Oprah got up and essentially got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Golden Globes, which is an award that Harvey Weinstein could have very well gotten, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this year, um, b- you know, before the stories came out. Like, that, that's a place that he would have been accepted prior to these stories coming out. And the fact that she used that platform to talk about how bad it's been, but also how much better it can be and is going to be, I think uh, really captured... Uh, a message that hasn't really been fully thought out very well during this whole thing. Mm. Like, and I know that's not really the point of like, it's going to get better, but her 
point of saying, like, here I stand in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a young woman watching this, I've been you. I've been in your shoes before, and like, this is where it starts. Yeah, this is where things start to get better. Right. Like, it's not going to be perfect, but right. like, we can start to make. We can be better. better. And and she is a survivor herself, but she didn't even dwell on her nope. experience. There was no mention of the fact that. She was just a child when she was raped more than once uh, by a family member. I think more than one family member. I mean, she's been through some unimaginable, uh, horrific experiences. But it wasn't about her. Um, I think the the it was about the moment. And and she spoke very eloquently about how it was also wasn't lost on her that you know as a black woman standing there, uh, the impact that that could have on the young girls and also boys watching at home um, who don't see people who look like themselves standing up on on that stage very often, if at all. Um, Did you know that I have and have had for a very long time a subscription to O Magazine? I did not. I love Oprah. My mom. I have since I was a well, kid. Uh, my mom watched her show every day. Um, and look, I mean, is she going to run? Is she not? Stedman suggested that she might. He said it's up to the people. She absolutely would. I don't know if she approved of the of those the, that uh, those comments. Maybe that was just him. Um, but I think that that in I was saying in another time it would have been like Oprah. Why yes, would Oprah right. run? Why would Oprah run for president? Or like, what are the credentials? I mean, she's very successful, but what what is it? Does she have the experience for office? I don't know what her platform is. Yeah, but well, it's funny. off the air, Ray and I were just talking and. We were saying like, oh, it's going to be really hard for her to give up all all of her businesses because she's got a million business ventures. Yeah, and then we were like, well, well not anymore. I mean, yeah. Donald Trump didn't give up any of his businesses. Like, why? Would but she you know have to what's going to happen up? is because she's a woman, it will be covered in like a much more, sure. no, no, uh, right. I bet, uh, explosive way. It'll, she'll be seen as. Can, I'm sure that she'll be seen as ruthless or. You're not wrong. Corrupt. It will, it will, the characterization will happen like that um, because there's different rules for men and women who seek political office, uh, which we could also get into uh, with uh, some of our great guests today. By the way, I, I just have to mention on, on Twitter at BP Show where we're tweeting, we put up a poll of who has a better shot at being president, Oprah Winfrey or Nikki Haley. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah Winfrey or Nikki Haley, who has a better shot at being president? Tweet right us. Now, Oprah's winning. At BP Show. Um, and you know, you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Bill Press Show. But before we, before we uh, take a break, I do want to quickly touch on the Golden Globes one more time because we're talking about women and we're talking about the gender inequality that, uh, really was, uh, the, the heart of this particular, the year's award, cher- award ceremony and Deborah Messing, um, who, you know, a lot of people know from some of her more prominent roles in on on television. She she couldn't help but take a jab at E News while being interviewed on the red carpet by E News. Here's what she had to say. You know, I was so shocked to hear that that E doesn't believe in paying their their female co-hosts the same as their male co-hosts. I mean, I, I miss Kat Sadler, and um, so we stand with her. And that's something that can change tomorrow. You know, we want people to start having this conversation that women are just as valuable as men. 
That's cold blooded, man. That's cold blooded, but it's honestly cold blooded. That's that's it's great. Oh no, it's it's fantastic. Because well, that's actually part of it, especially in Hollywood, and it's such a chummy kind of collegial environment. It's a lot. A lot of it is is not really calling one another out because you don't do that. It's just there's a code, and it's kind of BS when you think about it. Because if you're trying to make a point, then you undermine that point when you pretend that some of these issues don't exist in the very same platforms uh, with which you engage. Make the point where it's hardest to make the point. Exactly. Like she went right on E and talked about how bad they are, their practice yes. are. That's tough. And Natalie Portman uh, had a great moment, too, where while presenting the award for Best Director with Ron Howard, she said, and here are the all-male nominees. <laughs> they didn't come to play. <laughs> and neither did we. Uh, we'll, so we will be back with the great Andrew Ristucha. Stay with us, and we'll see you after the break at the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Monday morning. And joining me now to break down everything from fire and fury to the stable genius in the Oval Office is Andrew Rasuccio, White House reporter for Politico. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So we were talking before the break about the book that has shaken up Washington, um, by journalist Michael Wolf, and that is, of course, uh, Fire and Fury, as I said, and the way in which the White House has come out full guns blazing, trying to discredit the book, but also trying to defend the president's fitness for office. Uh, and you covered the president's um, tweets and remarks over the weekend, mm -hmm. referring to himself as a stable genius, uh, very smart. Uh, he declared himself. It, it just seems to me to be pretty remarkable, even by Trump standards, that the, the president is out there defending his mental fitness for office. Right. And I think the book is still sort of rever reverberating in the White House to this very moment. I mean, you know, I talked to people there yesterday. The president is still angry. He still he talked about it behind the scenes at Camp David. I mean, he talked about it in his press conference. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see the president of the United States say these things publicly. Um, and it's also I mean, let's be honest, it's distracting from everything else in every way. Um, you know the 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 Camp David meeting was meant to sort of lay out a le le legislative agenda going forward. Um, you really didn't hear a whole lot about that, um, but I think on some level the the White House sort of wants to have this conversation. Uh, it's sort of counterintuitive, but um, it it does fit in with their fake news mm -hmm. narrative. I mean, the president's doing these supposed fake news awards on Wednesday. Um, you know, this is. For them, I think, and I, I think we could argue that this may maybe not true in reality, but it's building this narrative that the media is incredible. Mm. Is that because it it just seems to also be one of those um, moments where it's the president's, um, you know, his history of having very thin skin, where yeah. when something just when he he can't let go of of things that rub him the wrong way um, or that that threaten. His position, even though he is the he's the most powerful man in in the country, one of the most powerful men in the world, but it's not enough to just have to just seek the comfort of of the fact that you're that he's there. He has to respond to every taunt or every slight, and engage in every feud. 
Right. I mean, this is a man who still deeply, deeply craves acceptance, despite the fact that he is the president of the United States. Um, this is a man who has been taught um, from you know, early middle age by his former lawyer, Roy Cohn, to hit back 10 times harder when someone criticizes you. Um, and it's a man who tries to send a message uh, uh, generally that if you go after him, he's going to he's going to bury you, basically. Mm. Cause you, so you've been covering this White House and, and obviously, as you say, this, this feeds into his, the, the administration's narrative about bias in the media fake news, uh, although, you know, Michael Wolff is not a journalist who covers the White House. Exactly. Uh, I mean, he exactly. wrote this book. Right. Um, but they but, don't make that distinction. But the, they don't make that <clears throat> distinction. But the thing that Peter and I were talking about before the break is, the re- even if there are some places where the truth might be stretched, um, or anecdotes might be exaggerated, in part because uh, Michael Wolff is, is somewhat known for having done that in the past, it's also believable because, I mean, you've covered this White House and there's not a whole lot in there um, that hasn't been reported in some capacity mm-hmm. in terms of just the broader thematic elements here, right, of the, the the atmosphere and the culture in this White House. I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't think any, any of us can vouch for every individual anecdote in the book. And I think there's been a lot said about the sort of individual errors. But I think if you take the book as a whole, take a step back. I mean, Politico, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian have been writing stories along these lines since January and before that. Um, you know, you talk to White House aides, you talk to people on the campaign, and there is a sort certain sort of knowing nod about how the president is. You know, I don't know that um, they're necessarily calling him an idiot uh, constantly, right? But there is a certain, um, at times, uh, eye-rolling um, or a certain way of handling him that sort of fits in with the narrative in the mm. book. And, and, and of course, not vouching for every element of it. But mm-hmm. yeah. So do you think they move on now? I mean, you mentioned that the, the retreat at Camp David, where he ends up giving this full throated defense. And of, he wanted to talk about right, this. Right. Of his stability. Point, yes. Right? He yeah. wanted to talk about it. Yeah. I don't think Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell no. wanted to yeah. talk about it or be standing there right. just like. And he's standing smile, there with awkward also smile his cabinet secretary, on his you face. know, DHS, uh, yeah. defense secretary. His whole cabinet is assembled there. And, and this is, you know, 2018. It's an election year. Republicans control both chambers of Congress and the White House. And here they are again talking about yet another distraction that is in part still being talked about as engaged. So what does the White House do, you think, this week? I mean, do they actually and, and also, you know, I mean. What actually came out of that meeting that we know of by way of legislative or priorities? So I think there's a couple things. I mean, the legislative agenda is not going to be particularly favorable for Republicans this year. Um, We're heading into the midterms. Democrats have very little incentive to cooperate. Um, There's uh, already internal disagreements about what the legislative agenda should look like. Um, There's been a a debate about infrastructure, welfare reform. Um, There's the debate about DACA and immigration. Mm -hmm. Um, The president himself is sort of, I think, looking looking at uh, infrastructure as something that he wants to go to first after, of course, the the, you know budget negotiations and DACA and all of that. But I mean, infrastructure, you know, it's going to be a really tough haul to, to get that passed, right? Yeah. I mean, so you could be looking at a situation where you see basically no major legislation passing this year. Right. Um, and so in that way, I mean, focusing, shifting attention away from that um, and toward this book that the White House says is is all fiction, um, I think for someone like the president is, is actually, you know, they'd rather be talking about that than his lack of agenda at the moment. You know, I, it was also striking that 
and as you say, um, there's obviously disagreement even within the Republican ranks and between Republicans in Congress and the White House um, over the agenda. But it was striking that there were a number of Republicans who were willing to go on TV and and defend um, the president's fitness for office. Uh, we heard from Tom Cotton. We heard from Mike Pompeo, the CIA director. Uh, we had Nikki Haley. Um, although there weren't a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, right. who seemed eager to to to, to appear uh, on the Sunday shows. Uh, you had a few of the usual suspects, like Lindsey Graham, who's had a more close working relationship with the president. But what are the ramifications for Republicans, um, especially as they continue to bear hug this president, because at this point they've they've made the calculation that they're all in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you've seen even the way in which they've changed their tone on the Russia investigation. You've heard more and more com- criticism of special counsel Rob- counsel Robert Mueller and this idea that the probe is tainted, which is what you the White House would like the characterization to be. Um, and you mentioned it's a, it's an election year and they're already uh, potentially running on an unpopular agenda. So when you have these moments where now they have to go out there and defend the president's stability, um, how does it play out with his approval ratings and for Republicans in Congress in an election year where they could stand to lose their majority in Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of pressure on Republicans in Congress to do something that shows that um, they have more than just partisanship up their sleeves, um, so I think infrastructure might be one of those things. Um, but more broadly, I mean, like like you said, I mean, they are tied to the president and everything the president does um, in almost every way at this point. And I think you're going to see, and you have been seeing, Ryan and McConnell sort of um, embrace the sort of legislative agenda that the president uh, puts forward, but sort of distance themselves from the sort of colorful side of the president. I think as much as possible. Mm. And and one thing also that in terms of the White House response to uh, this, this well, it's not they're saying it's not in response to the book. This has been a decision that's been long in the making. Um, but but imposing a crackdown, so to speak, on the use of personal cell phones. Um, now, this is for staffers. Can you kind of break down what this looks like, what this change looks like and how sure. they're um, justifying it? So, yeah, it's for staff and guests, guests in the West Wing. Um, when, we, when the statement first came out, there was some concern that it might affect reporters, mm-hmm. um, which would, you know, hinder hinder everyone's ability, ability to do their jobs. Uh, but we've now been told that reporters do are allowed to have uh, personal phones in the West Wing. Um, but it will actually prevent reporters from doing their jobs in a lot of other ways. Um, you know, uh, I talk to and I'm sure you talk to and most reporters in town talk to White House report, uh, White House officials every day on their personal cell phones. And now they're basically creating a situation where you at least you can't talk to them until later in the day, at the very least, if they're if they're talking to you on your cell phones at all. So um, though they've said this is about national security is definitely going to affect the ability of reporters to communicate day to day with White House officials, which I'm sure someone like John Kelly uh, loves the idea. Right. Right. Um, well, he's he, the, the the perception certainly is that John Kelly has tried to implement more discipline. Right. With, um, with mixed results. With mixed results, as we can see. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, so is is it is it the leaks? I mean, this is an administration that has had maybe more leaks than any previous right. administration. It's I would say certainly arguably certainly has Obama. had more more than Obama, especially within the ranks of the staff. I right. mean, I think that even as Obama weathered um, any number of controversies, right. uh, not on this, not as many as we've seen from from the Trump White House, but. 
even as the administration, um, you know, had its own fair share of moments where there were, you know, there were controversies that they had to to deal with. There, the I would the I would say there was this code. It seemed that Absolutely. you you do not undermine the White House and the and the atmosphere within the West Wing, and and there's a culture, I guess, where they're not going to stab each other in the back or le or or be part of leaks that would threaten someone else's position. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you covered Obama, I did too, and it was a pretty disciplined shop. I mean, not all the time. There were sort of examples, but the idea that you would get, you know, X person, you know, sometimes on the record or on, or, or uh, at least on background, you know, making digs against, you know, the president or his senior staff was just, it was basically unheard of under Obama. So mm -hmm. this is a totally different world that we're living in. Um, it makes for much more colorful stories, of course. But I mean, I, I think that we shouldn't t totally discount the national security element of this. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't t fully buy that, you know, this is that that's what this is all about. But John Kelly's uh, cell phone, Pert's White House uh, cell phone was, was reportedly by Politico and others mm -hmm. uh, compromised at yeah. one point. Um, so uh, I think for him like that, is a real concern. Concern, um, yeah. But you can't deny that this is also, on some level, going to limit leaks uh, mm -hmm. to some degree. But I mean, you know, to what degree I think is, is still up for debate, and we'll we'll see over the next couple of weeks because technically I think it started on Friday. Right. And as we talk about the uh, culture and the relationships in this White House, in the first year alone, I mean, now we were at the start of the second year, but the first year alone, you you see the departure of Ryan's previous chief of staff. Steve Bannon, the coast chief strategist who's mm -hmm. given equal rank to the chief of staff. Sean Spicer, the press secretary. Shortest communications director in history, probably Anthony Scaramucci. 11 days. In and out, yeah, within less than two weeks. Uh, and then, um, you know, we said, well, we said Steve Bannon. Uh, you can go down, the, you can go through this list. Um, and those are just the ones, Katie Walsh. Right. Um, th these are just the names that come to mind. And then there were some, you know, lower ranking aides sure. um, who also departed uh, are things in somewhat more of a stable place in terms of staffing personnel it, you know do you feel like or do you feel like we're potentially um, facing or, or staring down the barrel at more high profile departures so I think that there could be there there will almost definitely be more departures um, the degree to which they're high profile, I think it depends on your perspective. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is Gary Cohn, the director of the National Economic Council. Um, there's been speculation for months now that he could leave. Um, I'm told that he wants to stay at least to get through. There's a bunch of trade-related decisions coming up. I think he wants to stay at least through that. Um, but then there are these sort of lower-level aides that aren't in the news every day that mm. sort of do the sort of day-to-day -day running of the White House and the day-to-day -day policy work, and a lot of those people are considering leaving. Like if, if Gary leaves, I think a lot of the National Econo Economic Council staff mm. will follow him. Um, and then there are sort of, all the sort of policy councils are sort of going through this this time of churn. And that actually is, is a pretty significant thing, right? Because it's not necessarily like the Kellyanne Conways and the Stephen Millers that, that make the White House run day-to-day. -day. I mean, it's these people who do all the sort of economic the analysis work and, and the like right you know and there are people like the, like that in this white house that don't get credit for their work right i mean like any like in any government there are people who work you know long hours and right. do this sort of thing so right. and they're just not the public faces and exactly. then you have cabinet 
officials like Rex Tillerson, the right. the, the who every couple months, exactly, uh, his departure yeah. seems imminent, and he and says that, he wants to stay at least for the, through the year. I think that he does. Most recent comment. and then, but who knows? And it's always actually oddly enough, seeming to come from the White House that 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 they want that they are right. considering forcing him out, right? Um, which only seeks to then undermine, or which only ends up undermining um, the stature of the country's top diplomat. Yeah, and I think some of this is based on the president's mood week to week, right? I mean, like, there, I think, and the same goes with Jeff Sessions, right? There are times where he's high on him, and there's times where he's just totally frustrated with him and wants him out. Mm -hmm. And I think that depends in a lot of ways on the news cycle and, like, what he's watching on Fox News and and sort of the feedback he's getting from the media feedback loop. yeah, and I, and I think that that's a, definitely an open question about Jeff Sessions, too. Right, and Jeff Sessions was not invited to right. Camp David, which the, the Department of Justice said on, uh, on the record, which right. is very rare within and of itself. Exactly. Uh, now, we know that a lot of the, um, at least from the president's perspective, the, the frustration has stemmed from Russia, mm-hmm. from Jeff Sessions' decision in March of last year to recuse himself. Uh, from overseeing the federal probe um, after it was revealed that he had failed to disclose while under oath his own meetings with Mm -hmm. the Russians, at at least two meetings with uh, then-Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak. Um, So when it comes to Russia, because that is the other single greatest pressure point for for Trump, Mm And part of why his reaction to Bannon was so seemed to be so severe is that what Bannon was talking about was that infamous Trump Tower right. meeting with Don Jr. And right. It wasn't just a sort of offhanded criticism. Right. It was it was about the, the very thing that's hanging over this White House. There's been he said on Saturday that he would be open to talking to special counsel Robert Mueller. Um, have you had any sense from his legal team whether they think that's a wise idea? Is there an effort to shield him from testifying under oath? I mean, I don't know that there's an effort to shield him. I mean, publicly, they've been saying from the beginning that they want to cooperate. Now, the degree to which they're they're going to cooperate, I think, is a different question, right? Bringing the president of the United States in person to testify uh, in front of the special counsel is a risky proposition for any president, but it is even more risky for this president who, you know, is, let's be honest, unfiltered. Um, uh, you know, who knows what he would be like behind the scenes. Um, so I think one thing to watch is going to be do they just agree to do written written answers? Do they d- agree to some sort of um, limited uh, interview? Um, I think that's up in the air right now. I mean, I don't know what you're hearing, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, I would be very surprised if he if he went in front of the special counsel with absolutely no restrictions or strings. Right, and and I think that it, it's it's as you mentioned. Um, well, the cause for concern does stem from the fact that he isn't um, really capable of of staying on subject and and of and of just being straight and having one story. Mm-hmm. He veers all over the place. He changes his story. He has a known problem with the truth, um, and the implications, of course, of lying to the FBI. Uh, we've already seen those manifest themselves. That was what George Papadopoulos was charged with. That is what Michael Flynn was charged with. But as you, in fact, as you see these indictments, uh, and two of which have been have much more high profile, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. uh, how worried is the White House actually? Because obviously they put on this whole veneer that they're, that they're not concerned. But 
you know, we, we every other day now there's a new revelation with respect to the Russia inquiry. And so what what is the actual mood inside the West Wing? So I think there's two things happening inside the White House. On the one hand, there is uh, a sense that among staff that people just have blinders on and they're just going about their day to day and they'll tell you, well, you know, um, there's not only so much we can do, we just need to do the work of the American people, right? Like that's their that's their line. But I think on on the other hand, there is a sense of paranoia um, on multiple levels, uh, particularly about the prospect that there could be people in the White House um, who are already cooperating with Mueller's investigation. I mean, that's not outside the realm of possibility, right? And mm -hmm. so there is a, a certain um, hesitancy to talk about anything Russia-related, anything related to the campaign's interactions with Russia within the building. Um, which I think is uh, understandable. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say that you know people are just on on one level trying to ignore it and just move on. On another level, are you know deeply concerned about what's coming next because nobody knows, right? And the White House doesn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned you know they don't know who might already be talking to right. the FBI. And one of the um, sort of one-two punches that Mueller threw out was to you know first uh, indict Manafort and his deputy uh, Rick Gates, but then the surprise revelation about George Papadopoulos. Right. Fairly low-level foreign policy advisor, sure, but someone who um, had, according to court records, been ver making very clear to senior staff within the campaign that he was communicating with Moscow. Exactly. Um, and, and and with the Flynn in indictment, I mean, they did not know. The White House did not know that that was coming, hmm. um, which I think really spooked a lot of people in the White House. I mean, they did not get tipped off about that. You know, the one thing that we've seen, though, in their response is to try and distance the president from these people. Right. But it was already implausible with Paul Manafort. And you've seen the president say he was only my campaign chairman for a very short time. That short time happened to encompass when he accepted the Republican nomination for president, uh, a very pivotal time. Um, and when they changed the RNC platform, in part as a reflection of Manafort's own work um, with... Uh, not no longer providing lethal assistance to Ukrainian rebels, and that that sort of had been the culmination of some of Manafort's uh, work as a foreign um, lobbyist, which mm -hmm. he failed to register as. But with Flynn, this was his national security advisor, um, even if short-lived, but short-lived because he had lied uh, to the well to the FBI, but also to the vice president, vice president right. um, about his communications with with the Russians. As you have more and more people like Michael Flynn um, be the subject of indictment, how do you, if you're the president, say, well, I don't really know, um, you know, what these people were up to. I, I don't have much contact with them. I mean, they have a playbook for this, which is basically distance yourself as much as possible and ignore, you know, the reality. Right. I mean, they did this with Steve Bannon, too. Right. Yeah. They basically tried to rewrite history and pretend like he wasn't influential in every in every way when we they all know that he friends. was. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but that doesn't stop them from saying it, right? I mean, it doesn't stop them from, you know, there's lots of things they say that everyone knows, you know, are are sort of not quite right, right. you know? Um, and I think the, you know, as you see more indictments, if you see more indictments, um, if you see people get dragged into this, you're going to see uh, a consistent effort by the White House to totally distance themselves from from that person, no matter what the reality is. Mm. Um, and I think that's the strategy from from the White House. And, uh, and something I want to ask all our guests, uh, some somewhat quickly, but you know, feel free to if you have any thoughts. What do you think will be the biggest story of 2018? It's a good question. Um, I'm a policy person, so I, for me, I think the lack of 
um, legislative success in by Republicans when they you know still control both houses is going to be um, yeah. a huge story. You say that yeah. like this tax bill isn't the most popular <laughs> legislation we've right. seen in. Gener- generations. Though. I mean, the tax bill setting that aside, <laughs> but I'm talking about this year. I mean, no, there's right, not going to be. Year, I mean, it's I a midterm election year. Trouble and... passing anything, and what they run on is going to be really interesting. Right. I mean, they certainly have to turn around. Uh, you know, sarcasm aside, they do have to also sell a tax plan that is unpopular. Right. Um, that wasn't even a priority for their base. But uh, it's so great to have you here. Andrew Astucia is the whitest reporter for Politico. Follow his work on Twitter at Andrew Astucia and read it online at politico.com. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. We'll be back after the break. Stay with us on The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Broadcasting around the nation, on your radio, on your TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian. Top of the hour now on this Monday morning. And lots more to break down. And now with our guest, Pema Levy, good friend of mine, who is a politics reporter for Mother Jones. Good morning, Pema. Good morning. And Peter Ogburn is still with us. Hello, hello. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, Pema. Hello, hello. Um, as is Ray Rogers and Cyprian Bolding, our great team here at the Bill Press Show. Uh, we've, we, we, we do want to keep talking about everything from uh, Trump's mental health to Oprah. Uh, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Travel around the United States still a bit of a problem due to the bomb cyclone that happened early last week. For example, Charleston, South Carolina, is still the only airport in uh, the South that is shut down because of the weather. They are completely shut down. People aren't able to take off or land at Charleston International Airport. Also, over the weekend, how about this? The uh, JFK Airport in New York, a total disaster over the weekend. Not only did they have the bomb cyclone to deal with, not only did they have the cold weather that hindered their uh, cleanup efforts. But it was a pike burst over the weekend, completely shut down traffic to uh, JFK Airport. So not a good weekend for travel here on the East Coast. Is it ever a good weekend for travel on the East Coast? That's a, good, that's a very good point. <laughs> that's a very good point. We talked uh, last hour and we'll continue to talk about last night's Golden Globes and the Me Too movement that sort of took center stage. Well, Uh, Over the weekend, the BBC's China editor, her name is Carrie Gracie, she resigned from her job. She said that it was because of the pay inequality with male colleagues. The BBC put out, uh, they revealed that two-thirds of the people at the BBC making more than £150,000 a year were men. Mm. And says that they put out a statement, the BBC put out a statement and said, quote, there is no systematic discrimination against women. Their China editor, Carrie Gracie, 
disagrees. And so she quit. She left. She said that this was too much uh, and needed to be addressed. So she's out. And good for her for making that point. But it sucks that she had to yep. leave her job for that. The women seem to be the ones who have to leave their job time and time again. Isn't that wild how that happens? Uh, we talked about the Golden Globes. Here's some specific winners, by the way. Best Actress for a Drama Motion Picture is Frances McDormand. Uh, Gary Oldman won Best Actor for a Drama Motion Picture. Picture Best Drama Motion Picture. Three billboards outside Ebbing, uh, Missouri. Have you seen this yet? I have not, but I've heard it generated a bit of controversy. It's good. Okay. It's good. I don't think it's the best movie I've seen all year. Yeah. Uh, the best director of a motion picture was Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, which I did think is probably the best movie I've seen all year. Okay. I'm behind this time. I'm, I actually really haven't seen any. You haven't seen any? You any. Haven't, did you see I, Tanya? No, I want to. It's good. That is the one that I really would like to see. And I want to see uh, Lady Bird. Lady Bird also very good. Pem and I have plans to watch Lady Bird soon. Really? Yeah. yeah. You should. We're going to just watch Lady Bird and cry. Uh, Sabrina, I know you're a basketball person, but do you watch yeah. any college football? Uh, no, unless, uh, unless my boyfriend makes me know. Well, tonight is the national championship game. It happens in Atlanta, Georgia at 8 o'clock tonight. It's going to be on okay. ESPN. It is between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Georgia Bulldogs. Two SEC teams battling it out as of now. The Alabama Crimson Tide are a four-point favorite to win that game. Who are we rooting for? Oh, we root for Alabama. We always root for Alabama here uh, in, in in my seat. But, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But that, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever you're into. I mean, Northwestern is never, uh, ever in a position where I have much to root for. Not exactly a college football powerhouse. Not a powerhouse. Better in recent years, but but far from being a powerhouse. <laughs> That's a great recruiting uh, line. Better in recent years. <laughs> but not a powerhouse. But not a powerhouse. <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. So, Pema, we have had all kinds of things to talk about this morning. Uh, the president insisting he is a stable genius. Uh, but actually, Oprah 2020 um, <laughs> is, is, is uh, the, the maybe perfect foil to, to uh, you know, Saturday versus Sunday. I think if you compare uh, two speeches, a tale of two speeches, uh, one, of course, Trump speaking to the press, talking about his business record and and how he's a very smart man and everything that he has been able to do and achieve um and and all of that um as reason why he is in fact fit for the job of of uh, for the office of the presidency um look i think oprah it's 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 like one of those double-edged swords like we don't like to have to make everything political and to talk about 2020 already, or even if we've started talking about it the day after the election on November 9th of, of 2016. But, you know, and she's someone who has insisted she's not going to run for president. But that's what everyone says. And um, and people couldn't help but, but frame her speech uh, through the very real possibility that in this climate, in this environment, why can't Oprah run for president? Well, yeah, there's no reason that she can't. I mean, if you're... 
you know, I, I definitely think that Donald Trump lowered the bar, not that Oprah needed it to be lowered if she <laughs> wanted to run. Um, but certainly I think that, um, you know, Donald Trump's success basically said, hey, if if you have a lot of money and you're famous, uh, then you can run for president. Uh, the problem, and this doesn't really have anything to do with Oprah, but the problem for Trump is that if your presidency doesn't succeed, then the whole mantra of you just need an apolitical businessman to fix everything doesn't really work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he could potentially have opened the door to celebrities to run for president and then closed it after him. That's a good point. That's a good point, because that he would sort of be emblematic of how lacking in any uh, experience in public office actually uh, does undermine uh, the White House and the job. Um I'm interested, though, uh, you know, there were like there were multiple Democratic aides on Twitter who were tweeting very enthusiastically about this process. Uh, you know, Brian Fallon, I believe, who was who was a former spokesman for Hillary Clinton's campaign, said, oh, she would clear the field. You know, I mean, they they were they were they were there for it. Um, right. And I mean, it, it, there's such a crowded list of possible contenders for Democrats which usually isn't the case. Usually, actually, you know, and it's it's usually been a somewhat smaller primary. Republicans always have like a whole bandwagon of twenty people. Um, but you know, is it is it something when you when you when you talk to your own sources when you do your own reporting on you know the Democratic Party and its future? Do people ever mention Oprah as a real possibility? So here's what I'll say. I have not had the conversation where people say Oprah should run for president. That, that for me, <laughs> has not happened yet. But maybe I need to call some people after the Golden Globes and see what they say now. Uh, but I do think that Oprah has some things that Democratic, Democratic strategists really want. Um, I think that they want to get back to someone who, like Barack Obama, really inspires. And, you know, someone who both connects with people on a visceral and individual level and sort of gets their pain and also inspires them um, that there's something, you know, better around the corner. And I think that, you know, Oprah, that was like basically what um, they introduced her as, as someone who inspires us, right? Mm -hmm. That was the whole sort of lead up when they looked back at her career before she spoke was, you know, this is someone who sits on the couch with us, who talks to us about our problems, who who inspires us, um, you know, about the future. And so I think that, like, those two critical things she definitely has. Um, you know, I haven't, again, I haven't heard this yeah. coming from people. Uh, it would be definitely, I would be definitely curious to hear what people are thinking. But when Democrats are looking for someone who can inspire people, um, certainly she she's already known for that. Yeah, I would like to think that we have gotten to a place where, substance matters more than style mm. and like i you're not going to find a bigger fan of oprah than me literally i love oprah and i have for a long long time but i have no idea right. what she stands for politically right. and like she could deliver a really good message she knows her audience extremely well better than just about anybody else uh, that that is in the business of show but like I, I, i'd like someone who really knows the issues Right. fairly well to, to consider running for president. Yeah, I have to say... I'm not I, saying that she doesn't. I would say on a let's, domestic let's front, I could first. see potentially her having more to say about uh, income inequality, about gender inequality, unequal pay. I could see easily what some of the platform might look like for uh, the economy and an economic message more broadly. Um, and a lot of that work at the end of the day is done by a policy team, um, and they need and, and and I mean you know would would she maybe have 
the experience to debate a massive uh, health care plan or tax plan. I, we don't know. We haven't seen her ever engage in that terrain, but I could see it. Um, I was curious what would, you know, I was thinking, what would Oprah have to say about North Korea or about Russia or like, you know, about a plan to fight ISIS? Like, I, these are these are scenarios in which we haven't seen her. Um, and certainly, you know, Trump broke the mold by by, you know, having his finger on the nuclear codes and potentially who knows where that will lead us. Um, but we don't. But that the whole point that I think you made, Pema, is we, he could well be a, an example of how it is in fact a failure to have someone who doesn't have the governing experience in that position um but anyhow it was just a it was a it was sort of a fun way to kick off the morning with all the with all the chatter about potential oprah bid for president um everyone's going to have a moment uh, i think from, from now <laughs> right. until until 20 uh 20 itself uh, but one thing that was very thematic of the golden globes that we were discussing and you've discussed it here on this show we've talked about it um you know really ever since Harvey Weinstein and before i mean women have been talking about it since well before Harvey Weinstein <laughs> but but this you know me too moment and and the clear message from the globes last night uh, was that Hollywood is would like to say enough is enough, um, you know, from er- everything from the black carpet with all the celebrities donning black to the um, speeches uh, that were very heavy on speaking out and changing the culture. Although noticeably, none of the men who accepted an award made any mention of Me Too or of um, the watershed moment that has really dominated the headlines. That's a fair point. Um, but I mean, do you do do you sense a real culture shift? Um, I guess in in Hollywood, uh, there's still been this tendency to want to protect their own. I mean, jokes are made at the expense of people like Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein. Um, but what role do you, I just think it's more generally in terms of our culture, in terms of the role of arts and entertainment? And because this kind of kicked off with Hollywood, I think what role do you see? Um, you know, Hollywood and the entertainment industry playing in, in, in shifting the political culture, the policy culture, and, and potentially being a model for real change. Well, I think it's interesting. I think that it it can't sort of help but be a model on some level because it's such a public um, industry, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it had been like the, I don't know, the toy manufacturer industry, like no one pays attention to that. No one, you know, that's not something that we, you know, have like gossip columnists stalk that people, you know, I mean, this is just, this is an industry that's under the spotlight all the time. People have millions of Twitter followers, people, when they write an op-ed, you want to read it. Um, And so they have that platform and that means they have the chance um, to be a model and change the discussion and say, you know, as they did last night, we're ready for change. And so I think that that was a big deal. Um, I, I don't take that lightly. I think it was, you know, they really went all in on it in a way that I think is important because it really honored the people in their own industry who have come forward and, you know, expressed um, what happened to them. And, you know, and those people were, you know, Harvey Weinstein wasn't there, but the people that have come forward and show, told their stories of abuse by him were there and they were able to enjoy themselves and feel welcomed and at home. Um, but just because you put on one like show of, of remorse and <laughs> doesn't mean that you've actually changed. It's still, you know, there was sort of that joke at the end when they um, sort of had this big rallying cry for the Me Too movement. And then they announced the award for best director and only men were nominated. Yes. So, you know, there's definitely still the the juxtaposition between um, 
a sort of like recognition on the stage that things need to change and then the underlying power structures. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's definitely not going to happen overnight. But it, because it's so visible, right, because there are award so many ceremonies year after year, it is a place that can be held accountable and can demonstrate change if it wants to, right? So if next year there are more women nominated for Best Director, say, or Screenplay or some of these things, you know, if they can demonstrate that people um, really are pushed out of the industry and are not making movies, uh, you know, once credible, you know, allegations and charges come forward, um, then they are a place that can demonstrate uh, improvement in a, in a public way. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about this seemingly every day uh, leading up to the holidays. Now, granted, you know, you had the holiday season. It gets a little bit more quiet. Now we're in the new year. But uh, here in Washington, um, you know, you had multiple lawmakers who were accused of sexual misconduct. You, of course, had the Alabama Senate race uh, where the Republican nominee, Roy Moore, who was ultimately defeated, uh, was accused by multiple women um, of assaulting them, some he said he molested them when they were just teenagers. Um, and it was very much part of the discourse. Congress may be changing its, um, you know, its process for reporting sexual harassment. But I I was wondering if you feel like this conversation is still alive uh, in this news cycle that ebbs and flows. And we're one, you know, one day we're talking about sexual harassment. Today we're talking about Trump's mental fitness. Um, where does it really go here in Washington? And and do you see it as something that remains a priority um, here in the nation's capital uh, when it comes to its role as a body of government um, in, and, and changing some of its own rules, some of its own policies around sexual harassment? Yeah, I, I think I've definitely noticed that it's faded somewhat. It's not something that I think then will sustain itself. Um, I mean, this is sort of too bad almost but like you know a new allegation comes out and it's sensationalized and um you know and and people it's sensational i should say and, and people sort of jump to it and maybe that'll start like a scrambling among the press to find other victims but then once that story fades the whole thing sort of fades um i think that it won't go away entirely uh, i think that there will be people that will still agitate for changes both more broadly and um on capitol hill uh, people like, you know, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who have been talking about, you know, sexual harassment and treatment of women for years now. That's been part of, you know, her defining um, uh, how she identifies herself as a politician, as someone who's really big on these issues. And so for someone like her and some other people, um, you know, in the House, like Jackie Spear, who have come forward on this a lot, uh, I think that they'll continue to do that and continue to keep it in the spotlight uh, and I hope that it, that it stays in the spotlight. So I don't think it'll totally go away. But I just, I mean, you know, Congress under Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan is not, you know, their priority is not, um, you know, opening up more of their members to investigation. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly this is a, one of those areas where you've seen a lot of caution um, in terms of how to actually change the process. And I think, as you mentioned, um, who knows how many members would be accused of of misconduct if there were more if there was more transparency um but i think i see as you know some people like kirsten Gillibrand and jackie's jackie spire spear never quite know how to Ooh, say her yeah, name yeah i don't want to but up. um but you know who have tried who want to make this a forefront of the conversation and i i suppose democrats will potentially make this one of their pillars in 2018 just the advocacy for women um, maybe having a foil in Trump, having been accused of his own mis um, of sexual assault by as many as 16 women. 
Yeah, um, I think Trump himself, I mean, he keeps it alive by being in the Oval Office. I mean, he's, you know, the number one example of someone who, who got away with it. Right. Of someone who, you know, who, who no one cared. And so I think that um, certainly uh, throughout 2018, it would, you know, potentially loom over. Yeah, I, th- I think Democrats would be silly not to raise that point. I mean, you know, people have called on him to resign for this very issue. Uh, and I expect that drumbeat will will heat back up again. And one person who didn't get away with it was Roy Moore, as we mentioned. And um, and when we talk about 2018, and and not not just now talking about you know this watershed moment about sexual misconduct and how it plays out, but more broadly because you know we're we're in a new year. And it happens to be an election year. You've seen this movement mobilize on the left. You have seen um, a great deal of anger and frustration over and shock, frankly, over um, the victory of Trump and the aftermath um, and it's, and the ways in which Republicans have embraced him wholeheartedly, uh, really not um, acted as the check and balance that they campaigned on um, as, as, as being. Uh, but but you you know people were were in bold, I think Democrats were encouraged by Alabama, um, and I couldn't help but notice that you wrote about how um, the, you know a couple weeks ago Democrats uh, shouldn't maybe feel too hopeful or too excited about Alabama. Um, Womp womp. So, so God, why don't you tell us a little bit about as we're looking ahead at midterms. Um, this year, here's your oh. Monday morning wet blanket. Here we go. <laughs> why? Why should Democrats not take uh, too many lessons from Alabama? Well, I think the story that you're referring to there is a story that pointed out that while Doug Jones won uh, the election in Alabama, meaning he won the most votes, um, if you carved it up by a congressional district in Alabama, he only won one district. Mm. Um, and basically what happened is that, uh, you know, Alabama, you know, we don't pay as much attention to the fact that it's a gerrymandered state uh, because it's such a red state. Uh, but this showed that it's been gerrymandered to the degree that pretty much all of the Democratic votes are in one district. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, a microcosm of what you could see in 2018. Um, you know, Democrats don't, you know, they have to win a lot more than 50 percent in order to take back um, the House of, of Representatives, because they, it's been gerrymandered in such a way that they can win um, the popular vote and still not have a majority of seats. And so I think that that was sort of, you know, the lesson there. There are some good lessons for Democrats, too. Uh, you know, for example, just the excitement, the level of excitement, the level of, of turnout um, is something that Democrats will certainly need and benefit from. And that's what's needed to overcome gerrymanders. Um, but those are, are real and they're an obstacle uh, for Democrats in 2018. One thing that um, Trump said recently or perhaps tweeted um, was that Democrats want um, 2018 to be a referendum on Trump, but it won't be confusing in some ways because shouldn't he want 2018 to be a referendum on himself <laughs> is he effectively saying that yeah no that would be bad uh, like you know they wish it was a referendum on me but i but i always wonder and i like to ask the people who cover democratic politics um about this uh, very question is it enough for democrats to make this election a referendum on trump um so often i do feel like any other platform that they have is inevitably overshadowed by the reactive nature of our politics and that everything is a reaction to Trump. Um, You know, they rolled out that whole better way economic 
agenda. Um, I don't know that anyone has ever even revisited it since. I don't think so. Um, what do you see as their rallying cry um, at the polls this November? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that so far, um, reaction to Trump, a uh, referendum on Trump, uh, anger about Trump uh, has driven uh, Democratic su- success in you know these off-year gov- gubernatorial elections and special elections. Uh, but I do think Democrats will need more of a positive, here's what we're going to do message. Uh, I don't know if in 2018, you know, in 2018, maybe, you know, midterms are always uh, sort of a referendum on the president, whoever's in office. Uh, So it's possible that they can get away with that at that point. Um, But certainly for 2020, they're going to have to offer more of a vision than just we're not Trump. Trump is bad. Um, I think that Doug Jones offers a good way to do this. Um, He did a really good job of sort of not getting caught up in sort of you know, national. Trump's day to day in the national stuff. He didn't really comment on Trump's tweets. He stayed much more focused on issues. And I think that that's something that, you know, you can sort of point out, hey, we're not Trump. You know, you should certainly run against an unpopular president. Uh, but at the same time, there's got to be a what are you going to do for me? Uh, and I think, you know, Bernie Sanders made this point recently, and I, th- I thought it was a good one, which is that, you know, if we need Democrats to come out in 2018, we need to show them that we're fighting for them. You know, so we need to make a stand for you know, uh, DACA recipients, for example, was what he was talking about when he said that, um, which was, you know, if Democrats don't stand up and do that, then people are going to be like, are you, well, why would we come out and vote for you? You're not, you're not doing what you say you're going to do. So I think that there's a, you know, a push and pull and, and some disagreement within the Democratic Party about how much they need to show uh, people what they're really for. So, and I fully, you know, I fully think um, I'm in agreement because I, I, I feel like that was actually the challenge Hillary Clinton faced in 2016 is that at some point she deviated from her own platform, which was very much rooted in policy proposals and made the entire election a referendum on Trump, uh, was not particularly successful then in so far as um, people feeling like she was asking people to vote for you know, the lesser of two evils. I mean, that's how it gets framed, right? Even though there's no, there's no that I find that to be within of itself a horribly false way of looking at two candidates who are vastly dis- different in what they had to offer. But that that's what ends up happening is, you know, vote for me because I'm not the other guy um, is what gets distilled down to the public. But um, when it comes to actual legislation and, or actual governing, uh, a governing agenda, if there is one thing that has happened, it's tax reform. Um, do you see so you because you co- you covered the 2010 midterms as well. You covered the aftermath of Obamacare. Do you feel like there is an opportunity for Democrats to make this the key um, piece of legislation that really decides uh, the outcome of the election? It's possible. And I say um, that by caveat, of course, wildly different pieces of legislation. Yeah. But just like in the terms of the po- the politics of it, right? If it passed a massive bill that is changes a decades-long structure um, of the system and is owned singularly by one party. So that caveat, of course, right. I'm not debating them on the merits. Right. No, but, but I think I think the, the sort of politics of them is interesting. I think that Democrats, you know, should push. I would push, you know, if I were them, I would I would push this issue um, because it was a really unpopular bill and people saw through it and saw that, you know, the tax cuts for working middle class people were tiny and that the tax cuts for corporations and the, the rich were, were big. And that, and that was clear. And I would 
you know, if I were them, I would continue to hammer that home because it's the opposite of what Trump said he was going to do on the campaign trail. Um, at the same time, I think it will probably be harder to, to do it what with that bill, what Republicans did with Obamacare um, in 2010, because Obamacare was. There was it, they went they took so much time to pass it, right? Republicans sort of jammed this through and then there's just so much going on and Trump is on Twitter and there's just so much volume um, sort of mm-hmm. there's so much out there that sort of distracts you. And, you know, the American people were focused on the tax bill for a, a month, if that, um, whereas they were focused on on Obamacare for almost past. Uh, so I do think that it's it will be harder, for example. Um, but I actually and I also think that health care is a big one. I think that, you know, Republicans in failing to repeal Obamacare, but they still made health care front and center. People still feel like they can't trust Republicans on health care. Uh, and they did repeal the individual mandate, so there's more uncertainty now. So I do think that, you know, health care and the tax reform, I would I would assume that they would become big issues. Right. I mean, it's 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 always I think that you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the sheer volume um, and there's, there's, and then there's Russia, which is probably a little bit more discussed here in Washington. And there's a lot of polling that shows that, I mean, certainly with among the Democratic base, it does play well, but but broadly nationally, it is not as much a topic of conversation as much as it is here. But it's almost like I think I remember a former Clinton campaign staffer when Trump became the nominee described it to me thusly when I, in my reporting that. You could go after 12 different things in any given day, and the challenge is to find out what sticks. And I'm not sure that anyone has really figured that out when it comes to Trump uh, right. or when it comes to this moment that we're in. It's both a weakness of his, but also when facing a, a political opponent, it's almost a great strength. Right. Because they get thrown off message. They don't have time to say, to hammer home their own agenda. They're yeah. constantly just reacting to like right. sort of crazy tweets. And at some point, the public just tunes it all out <laughs> because it's it's another outrageous thing today and they can only keep up with so many outrageous things. And, um, but, uh, you know, you were talking about turnout will be key. And, and for Democrats, if they are able to turn these the, the marches and the protests that we saw in the early stages of the Trump presidency um, and the and galvanize uh, that reaction to his election into something at the ballot box. I think that would be the key to their success. Um, you did cover also the voter fraud commission, um, which Trump dissolved, uh, and and so there were there were voting rights advocates who were somewhat concerned about ballot access because of this commission. Right? Is this something that has any bearing on midterms, or in general, was it just its own facade that was to pacify the president's? Uh, bruising loss of the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it was uh, probably more than a facade. I mean, certainly I think the president um, believes that he won the popular vote. He wants to prove that because um, I, so you could you could call it like a vanity project, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had the potential for, for serious consequences, right? It had the potential to put out a report that vastly overstated the incidence of voter fraud. Um, the data they were collecting and that they were going to analyze was so poor that it was going to produce false positives. I mean, you talk to you know people who study ele- elections, people who understand statistics, and and you just say, look, the, these are flawed databases that you're working with. You're going to come up with a lot of you know thousands upon thousands of false positives, and then based on a flawed report like that, uh, you know the president wants to go forward and pass. You know, more voter ID laws, mm-hmm. more restrictions to the ballot. Um, so 
you know, voting rights groups have have cheered the fact that this commission has come to an end. Uh, but we don't know what's coming next. Uh, the president has asked the Department of Homeland Security to look into it. That is uh, worrisome. Mm. <laughs> the Department of Secu- Homeland Security was not set up to go after voter fraud. Uh, they're supposed to be um, having strong relationships with minority communities because that's how you have cooperation and that's how you you know, find actual threats and mm-hmm. and actually keep the country safe and, and focus on things like that. So the fact that they are trying to turn over um, this search for for voter fraud to uh, to folks who work in in immigration and national security, I think, is, is really worrisome. Yeah. The untold story to me remains that the the potential changes at the agencies across the board um, under this administration. Um, but we'll definitely have uh, hopefully many more time um, opportunities to revisit that uh, uh we're going to be back after this break are you staying are you staying with us are you i'm sorry, doing whatever the, you want okay <laughs> <laughs> well stick around if you'd like as a friend of sabrina a uh, friend of bill uh, and we'll be back with you after the break so stay tuned to the bill press show this is the bill press show welcome back to the bill press show sabrina siddiqui here political reporter for the guardian filling in for bill on this monday morning uh my friend pema levy is still with us Still here. Uh, Very much still here. (laughs) And also uh, my other good friend, Igor Babich, who is, of course, a great politics reporter at HuffPost. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Nice to see you and Thank happy you. Monday. You as well. Uh, you can, of course, follow him on Twitter at Igor Babich and read his great work at HuffPost.com. Um, you know, Igor and, and Pema, we've been talking this morning about um, Trump's mental fitness for office. Oh, something, is that... Something is that- that- or is that under question? Or, Occasionally. You know? Occasionally. Only because of a book. Never before the book did anyone ever wonder if he was fit for office. Uh, but he is, of course, a stable genius. So so we are in good hands, according to Trump. He is very smart. Um, the, the stablest of genius. You know, after after this presidency over is over, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in on, a, on an idea that I've had. Okay. Is I'm gonna is I'm gonna uh, Publish a book. It's going to be called the Trump Dictionary. It's going to assemble oh. all his great words. No, no, don't give it away. That... <laughs> Someone's going to do it, it now. He, the man is, has changed our lexicon. I it's know. Just, you know. But see, you're giving away a great right. idea. Yeah. Uh, and someone else is going to ink a book deal. And then <laughs> they heard it here first. Um, but, you know, you wrote about Republicans uh, essentially dismissing uh, when Trump tweeted that he had a much bigger and more powerful nuclear button than North Korea, than uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, very stable. Very stable. Well, which is also <laughs> underscores the point that it's not just because of Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, that this conversation uh, mm-hmm. is being had. I mean, he, his own erratic behavior, and this right. is not the only tweet. I mean, this is behavior we've seen since before he even assumed office, uh, suggests that, that you know, he is impulsive, uh, that he is extremely sensitive, uh, and, the, and the list goes on and on about that. Lacking attitude. emotional intelligence. Lacking empathy. Right. Um, so so I'm curious, though, about whether or not Republicans are concerned about his stability, especially when he could precipitate a nuclear war in with the snap of his fingers. I think that privately they are concerned. There's a lot of senators who are concerned, but publicly they're not willing to come out and say so yet. Um, Trump obviously holds an iron fist over the party, as we've seen over the whole brouhaha over Steve Bannon. Um, so they're still uh, hesitant, really, to come out and say it, even for something as crazy as him taunting a nuclear, uh, you know, a, a rogue actor of a nuclear state. Um, and the, one of the most interesting things for me about 
asking Republican senators about this was that, uh, you know, before tax reform, before they passed the bill, one of the big, you know, conventional wisdom lines was that uh, Republican senators didn't want to come out and criticize the president because they first wanted the tax cuts passed in the law. They didn't want to jeopardize, any, jeopardize anything about that bill. Now that that has been passed and he signed it, they still are hesitant to come out and say anything, even even when, you know, he says absolutely bonkers things. So. You, you spoke to some Republicans on Capitol Hill. I seem to recall covering a campaign where one Republican senator very specifically warned that this this is not someone who should have uh, access to the nuclear codes, Marco Rubio, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> who like says that he stands by everything he said in the campaign, but then also just you know doesn't really uh, speak out in any meaningful way either. Right. Um, but you know you mentioned that at this point we thought okay they want these tax cuts like that's they're after this tax plan. What if they just do they do they see a political upside still in 2018? Is it because they just the base is with them and and so they know there's still this anti-establishment wave? You saw it in the nomination of Roy Moore. What what is the thinking here? Or do they are they true believers? And you can chime in too. I'm I'm. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a it's political. Um, and that's not exactly to let anyone off the hook here. I mean, the fact that you. You know that you feel something in private and you won't say it in public. You know that then it doesn't count. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't count unless you say it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't get to have like a secret true feeling in your heart that like defines you. Um, that's not how it works in politics. Yeah. But you know, yeah. On the one hand, I think that if anything, my sense is that the tax bill has made people, the success of the tax bill has made people more reticent to speak out against the president. And I think it's because it showed, oh, we finally got something done. And maybe we can get something else done. Like we have other priorities. So maybe we shouldn't bash this president because we want him to sign other things that we send to his desk. And then secondly, yeah, the midterms are on the corner. This is going to be about the, be about the president. The weaker you make the top of your own party, the worse your party is going to do. And I think if we've seen anything in the last few years, uh, it's that party is everything, right? Mm-hmm. This is such a polarized uh environment right now. This is an environment where people are repeatedly picking party over country. Uh, And so I think that that's what you're seeing here. And the other thing I would say is that this book, Fire and Fury, it didn't say anything that we didn't know. Mm -hmm. But I think what it said that was really interesting was that what we're already talking about is being talked about inside the White House, Mm. right? And so that gave us this sort of permission, right? Because the White House comes out and they say, I can't believe anyone would ever talk about the 25th Amendment. I can't believe anyone would ever talk about his fitness to serve. But then when you have someone saying, actually, they're talking about it inside the White House, then it sort of creates this permission for everyone else to say, okay, maybe we should be having this conversation. Maybe we're not just a bunch of, like, kooks out here, like, (laughs) stroking our beards and wondering what's going on. Um, You know, they're talking about it, too. Mm. And, um, you know, it's one of many books to come. So um, I'm curious what (laughs) what the other books will tell us. Uh, Maggie Haberman, of course, uh, working on a book of her own, um, no longer with Glenn Thrush, but still she has a uh, she's got g- g- great access as well to this White House and the big one, uh, Jim, uh, Jim, James Comey in May. Oh, right, be coming out with his own book, so that'll be which, which will also <laughs> um, probably say a lot, a lot that he has not, he has uh, in his traditionally apolitical career uh, held back.
Um, but, you know, one thing, because you, you talk about the political calculation um, and you covered the Alabama Senate race mm-hmm. and you co- and one thing that was striking, though, if you, you know, there is this environment of party over country. But one of the most striking things about Alabama was that this is a state that Trump won by 30 points. But his own approval rating was split. Um, in and now it's one special election. The exits are not going to tell you everything you need to know. Right. But that's not that's not just within a margin of error. I mean, for his approval rating to be split in the state of Alabama, um, signals potentially that Republicans might be make, on the wrong side of this calculation. Yeah, I mean, I, and Alabama is only the latest race where we've seen some evidence now that there is a there is likely a coming blue tide that's going to uh, sweep out a lot of Republican members out of Congress. And um, this obviously has a huge impact on Trump and his agenda and what he wants to do. Um, so I think Alabama was just the latest sign that uh, Republican voters um, really are looking at Trump. And as much as, as consequential, not consensual, of a president <laughs> he has been, um, that he really, he's the way he's doing it is so off-putting. And uh, Republicans, national Republicans, party leaders, uh, operatives who are looking at some of these races are seeing warning signs in suburbs, you know, in uh, suburban districts where, you know, you've got soccer moms to belabor the point uh, who are looking at this president and, and thinking like, this is not somebody I want to represent me. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about Alabama, um, apart from from the exits, um, was I, I heard an interview with uh, Joe Trippi, who was the chief strategist on that mm-hmm. campaign, and he said that basically every time Trump weighed in and said, like, oh, we need Roy Moore, Doug Jones is terrible, uh, Roy Moore would jump up in their in their internal polls by about four points. Mm. And then after, over the course of a few days, it would come back to being about neck and neck. And for someone who won a state by 28 points to only be able to move the needle by four points and yeah. have that only last about... A day or two, yeah. you know, that's that's serious weakness right there. Um, and so I think that that's a number that's really interesting is that, you know, when Trump goes around the country, he's I mean, he loves to campaign, right? He's going to campaign and he goes into these places and, and fires up the base. How much is he actually able to move the needle anymore and how long will it stay? Right. I think that's a great point. And and then there's the primary uh, challenges that are poised um to, I think, affect the Republican side more so. Um, and you saw some, and you've seen Roy Moore sort of be a, a reflection of Trumpism and these fringe candidates no longer being on the fringe. They're now the mainstream mm-hmm. because that's the door that Trump opened when he became the head of the party. Um, and and having said that, I'm curious now, because Igor, you've written about this. Um, Steve Bannon, of course, is the one who's trying to orchestrate this grand takeover of the Republican Party, um, and weed out uh, so-called establishment Republicans. Where, not, not going so well. <laughs> well, you know, first and foremost, he failed with Roy Moore. Yeah. Um, maybe don't stick with the accused child molester. I don't know. But 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 whoa, he did whoa, have. Whoa. But he had the he had the backing of Trump even after those allegations had surfaced. It was after the allegations that Trump actually formally endorsed Roy Moore. He hadn't even yet endorsed him prior to them. Um, but I, I think it, where does this put um, the president now that he is engaged in this very public feud with Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. um, who would like the pre- and who actually is more likely to would have been more likely to have the president's support for some of these candidates who any other Republican president would have dismissed outright. 
you know, or any other any other Republican candidate would president, sorry, would have looked at some of these insurgent um, you know, insur insurgent candidates and not wanted anything to do with them. You know, campaigned on behalf of the incumbents. Trump is someone who has shown himself willing to actually potentially retaliate against incumbents like Jeff Flake, like mm -hmm. Dean Heller. But what has the dynamic shifted, do you think? Well, I, I think our president is somebody who sees uh, <laughs> the world in wins and losses, mm -hmm. and he badly wants wins. And now that he's he's had a loss, he really wants wins. And uh, I think he's going to try to be doing whatever he can to, to help prop up people who can win. Uh, but he did say recently that he would be willing to help incumbents as well as any candidate who uh, uh, supports his vision. And I think that includes, you know, some of these insurgent candidates. Do you do you feel like Steve Bannon has a real future? Do you feel like he is still uh, an instrumental force uh, within Republican politics? Or do you do you see now poised to be sidelined? I, I think the establishment is having uh, a really grand time and seeing Steve go through uh, this this hard time for him. But I, I, I think Trump himself uh, is the person where he never buries anybody, really. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he still pines after Corey Lewandowski, let's say. And I think uh, as, as much as Steve Bannon is down now, um, you know, in a couple months, he could be back up. I think that there's still um, something to be said for the apology tour now also that Steve Bannon is, is, uh, has embarked on. He knows exactly how to get back on the right side of Trump, which is my, to just praise him endlessly <laughs> and, and do your dear leader bit. My favorite thing about that so-called apology is him saying that he regretted not his comments, which he didn't deny right. or, or uh, you know, contradict him in any way. He, he expressed regret over the delay in responding to them, mm -hmm. which took away from the president's agenda. It's a very artfully put apology. I mean, the, the, that was also because he still very much views the dynamics in the White House through the same lens, which is Javanka, as they call them, Jared and Ivanka and Gary Cohn and the globalists against <laughs> the true believers. The, you know, the, it, it, and I was curious if, um, the structure in within the White House or the dynamic within the White House, in, in from your point of view, has changed in any meaningful way, or do you still have the very same culture of infighting, um, of under seeking to undermine one another? I mean, so I was we talked. There was such a long list of high-profile departures last year. We haven't had one now in a few months. But um, is there any sense that there is now one administration that is? working toward a common agenda no, no. <laughs> <laughs> easy answer yeah i mean i think this year is gonna be even crazier than the last year and and uh what there have been rumors of more administration officials leaving mm. um usually you get this turnover a, a year into the administration but i think because this one has been so much more hectic um you'll you'll see a lot more people leave and uh, a lot of people worry that uh, uh that chief of staff john kelly is going to leave that him being some kind of anchor for Trump and kind of holding in the line and uh, ensuring that that there's still some kind of normalcy here that they don't want him to leave. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be even more batshit than it than it has. <laughs> has he instilled any real discipline? <laughs> I mean, it's like it's amazing. He just seems to defend um, some of the president's 
impulses, and he has repeatedly done so. I think people were really struck when he actually defended the president um, amid the controversy over his phone call with the widow of um, one of the fallen service members in Niger. And it, John Kelly, I think, has been in some ways the biggest surprise because it actually seems like he is, in fact, um, much more of a true believer in some of Trump's agenda than people had otherwise thought. Yeah, I, I absolutely think he is. And I think especially when it comes to things like immigration, um, you know, that that's one where he was, you know, you know, working hand in glove with the administration as the head of uh, Homeland Security before being tapped to be chief of staff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whatever <laughs> discipline John Kelly is imposing in the White House, it's not like being done publicly, right? The president did not stop tweeting. <laughs> um, if anything, he's been more unhinged recently. So I don't I don't know exactly, you know, without being an insider, maybe, you know, when it comes to his like internal briefings or something, there's more like discipline there. Um, but outwardly, we I don't think that that we see it. Um, what I'm really interested with uh, when it comes to, to Steve Bannon, you know, Steve Bannon has a lot of principles and he has a lot of morals in, in terms of like what he wants to see in terms of like Morals is maybe a weird way to put that. He has a, he has an agenda. Uh, and I think the question is, if he thinks that he's lost Trump and that the agenda is just totally going off the rails, that the globalists have won, um, I could see him turning against the president. Uh, at the same time, I could see the president really missing that like wonderful coverage from Breitbart and mm -hmm. wanting to get Steve back. So I think that there's going to be sort of like an awkward dance going on here, um, you know, for for the rest of the presidency, really, um, between these two, because they both have a symbiotic relationship where they need each other. Um, but they will, I think, both have the capacity to turn on each other. Mm. And I think it's actually notable that there have been there's been more than one occasion where Breitbart has had a very critical uh, front page when it comes to Trump. Any time that they think that he is uh, going against what he campaigned on, what he promised uh, to hard right conservatives, certainly with DACA when he was toying with keeping it in place, keeping it in place. And the longer he did actually keep it in place, he waited until September. It took him nine months to finally say, "Okay, I'm going to move to phase this out." Um, for he, there were many critical headlines over at Breitbart from the immigration hardliners who were saying. Well, you know, are you now supporting amnesty? Um, and then if if they do, in fact, reach a deal and he signs that deal, I could very much see them turning against him for that alone. Yeah. The tax bill was really fascinating. When that passed, I went to Breitbart and I was wondering how they were going to be covering it because Steve Bannon actually wanted to raise taxes on the rich. Right. Right. Um, you know, he felt and like that would be more in yeah. line with what the campaign that he helped Trump run. Um, and so when I went to Breitbart.com after the tax bill passed, I could not find mention of the tax bill on that website. I mean, it mm. was like nothing had happened. I had right. to search in their search bar <laughs> to find an article on the tax bill. And there were like three of them. And they basically like distorted what the bill actually did. But essentially, they just chose not to cover it. Yeah. And this is the president's like single legislative accomplishment. There right. wasn't a, a white national spin on the tax bill on Breitbart? <laughs> not that I saw. Oh, okay. It was, it was shocking. You had to literally go search to find, you yeah. know, buried articles yeah. that basically said this is a win for the middle class that and kind of just dis distorted like, the whole thing. It's like but. silence speaks louder than words. So we're like, they, 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 like you said, it's the one single legislative accomplishment. So in a way, you would expect his supporters would have this massive banner it's like, you know, finally a major victory. But then... I mean, it was like it didn't happen. It was like it didn't happen. <laughs> now, I can't help but um, keep noticing the TV screens uh, that people can't uh, see uh, who are watching this uh, on YouTube. But 
like the the Oprah speech. Uh, has pretty much dominated the headlines this morning. And Pema and I talked about this a little bit before the break. But Igor, you know, you cover, um, you know, democratic politics as well. You 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 also uh, have covered many an election. Oprah twenty twenty is that I, a real possibility? Watching your speech last night, I was devastated, and I was devastated because sitting in the audience was one uh, very taken aback bald-headed man by the name of The Rock. And he was, he was, you could see it in his eyes. The, the, The screen, the camera briefly captured his reaction. And the guy was just like, oh no, I'm gonna be VP. Cause you could, you could just see it. Everybody was for Oprah. Yeah. And, because the Rock was was toying with his own run. For he was president. Oprah before Oprah. He Everybody was, Oprah was before yeah. Oprah. Yeah. But you know what we were talking about was it's not out of the realm of possibility now. No, it's not. She's got the money. She's got the name recognition. What she's very the, what popular. What would the platform be like? If you're Oprah, what are you running on? I'm stable. <laughs> I'm a stable genius. Right. I'm a stable genius. Yeah. Um, you're a big awards show watcher. I feel you like oh, yeah. you, you, well, you know, you got that Hollywood. It's my executive time. It's your executive. Yeah. <laughs> the awards show watcher. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're someone who like you, you like pop culture. You're. I was curious if you, what you, what were your big takeaways? I mean, the, the politics and entertainment are, um, are, are cannot really be separated anymore. I think that the the arts and entertainment industry feels like they have been called to address. Uh, much more serious problems um, in this country, and certainly the, the Me Too moment was the the theme of of last night's uh, award ceremony. But did you have any key takeaways about you know? I, I think actually they were surprisingly quiet when it comes to Trump. They were. I don't think they mentioned him at all. I mean, Seth Meyers. No. Um, other than Seth joke, did in the opening. It was yeah. but other than his joke about how. He, he may be partially to blame for Trump having run in the first place because of his right. hosting of the correspondence dinner. Um, he didn't actually make fun of the president. And do you think that was by design? Do you think they just decided that they're going to stay a, a sort of apolitical in that sense? I, th- I think they wanted to stay on message about sexual harassment and assault and, and not... I, I don't know. I was expecting more uh, direct call-outs of... You know, the president uh, refusing to acknowledge his recusers. Right. I mean, I've, even within that theme, right. you have the uh, commander in chief being um, having been accused by as many as 17 women of sexual misconduct. In that in that same sense, there was also no um, uh, there, were, there were no men. Uh, male actors mm-hmm. who acknowledged or, the movement. Yeah, or you, you saw plenty of uh, men in, in black, uh, dressed in black and with the pins, but. I don't think I heard anybody acknowledge. Uh, right, that was a, that was one of the um, topics that was trending. That that not a single man who accepted an award for any, whether acting or direction or any other, um, if, you know, nom- nomination or category, I should say, mentioned it at all. Now, right. you know, some people were trying to say, well, then they could be accused of like mansplaining or what have you. But frankly, I don't think they would have been. I think, I mean, the 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 change. Um, will only happen if men take more responsibility and speak out because men are more likely to operate within a code where you don't talk about it right. and you protect your own. And, and in that sense, it's a little hard right now to see how the Dem nominee in 2020 isn't a woman. Mm. Uh, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, right. maybe. Maybe Oprah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's when Kirsten Gillibrand shakes her fist and says, first it was Hillary, now it's Oprah. <laughs> Can't catch a break. Um, I, I want to ask both of you, uh, before I let you go, uh, what do you each think will be the biggest story of 2018? Ooh, do I have to go first? Uh, ladies first. Uh, <laughs> damn it, chivalry. <laughs> um, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, how how specific am I supposed to be? I mean, like Trump is the easy answer. Yeah. Like a rapid here. fire, like in the, even within Trump. I mean, there's a million stories you could tell. But what do you think will be the biggest story? I mean, I think the biggest story is is going to be the elections. Mm-hmm. I think that. You know, people on both sides are so obsessed with it. Everything is going to be leading there. I don't really see giant, like, legislative achievements on the horizon. I could be wrong. Um, Just the election, the outcome. You really quickly. North Korea. North Korea. Hopefully not World War III. (laughs) Uh, Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Uh, Igor Babich at HuffPost. Pam Olivia at Mother Jones. Follow them both on Twitter. Follow us at BP Show. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Serena Siddiqui signing off. Thanks for tuning in this morning. And keep on watching The Bill Press Show.